All right, everybody, Advancing Man Project show, and I'm here today with Eric Moss. I've known Eric for a long time. I was just thinking about it the other day. Coming up on 20 years, right? It's and something like that. I want to say it was like 2006, 2007. Yeah, so right? between 15 and 20 years, we've known each other, and we met back in the old fitness kettlebell days at a big uh, fitness professionals business conference, uh, connected up with each other there. And uh, we have very parallel paths. We both have uh, become strong men. Eric's out there rocking stages, doing corporate keynotes, doing school shows, doing all the same kind of stuff that, that um, I think is so fun and rewarding out there, bending steel and inspiring people. He has two children, two girls, age six and four, which my son is five, so it falls right in the middle. Um, as a strong man, he's world record holder, um, and he's also an author of a book called um, "The Strongman Experience." Is that right? The Performing Strongman Experience. The Performing but... Strongman Experience, and a personal trainer. And you're based out. Of, I always screw up the pronunciation of your town. It's in New Jersey, and it's called what? Booten. Booten. That's not the place yeah. I'm thinking. What's the other place that starts with an H? Oh, I, I lived in Hopatcon. Hopatcon. I since moved to Rockway, like right down the right around the corner from my parents, which is okay. super handy. Yeah, I um I always defaulted to pronouncing Hopatcon as Hoptakong, and I knew that wasn't right, but here we are. That's what that's what the GPS would call it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I appreciate you being on the show today. Um we are going to just like we were talking about before I hit record, we're just gonna talk about stuff and and see where this all goes so give us a little bit of background about your personal journey um how strength has woven itself into everything that you do and just um, um talk a little bit about uh, give me the condensed version of uh of the performing strongman experience book because that that book is uh pretty autobiographical as it is yeah i was gonna say if anyone wants to go in depth on it my book is available on amazon but to put it into uh, a shorter version is like when I was a kid, I was allergic to just about everything you could think of. I had also attention deficit disorder and I was told by my second grade teacher that I was a lazy little boy that would never amount to anything. Now with attention deficit disorder, I was medicated and the medication helped me focus on my studies, but it made me shy and withdrawn, which made it difficult for me to make friends and talk to girls and all that stuff that, that you fixate on when you're an adolescent, right? So as I reached high school, I got involved in martial arts, which gave me confidence. And I also got involved in weight training, which, um, you know, as, as you get more and more confident with the weight training, it transforms every aspect of your life and enabled me to be who I was meant to be to begin with, <clears throat> which gave me a passion for anything strength and fitness related, which led me to being a personal trainer, which led me to that conference where you rolled up some frying pans and and uh, gave me some parting words of wisdom with that, which it's like when you look back on it, it's like you talk about different turning points in your life, and that was that was one of them, you know. Yeah, that's cool. I'm I'm happy that uh, that I can be included as that uh, that touch point in there too, because um, that's what it's all about for me with doing feats and and connecting with people using feats as a as a tool to do that. It's like, if, if I can do a feat and someone's like, that's awesome. I want to go do this other thing. I feel inspired, you know, and it sounds kind of cheesy and, and, and all that, but it's the truth, right? I mean, sometimes the, the cheesiest things or the cringiest things are the truth. We, uh, we do the speaking for myself and I, I believe I'm speaking for you too. We do these feats of strength. We get on stages and talk to people because we want people to uh, look up and look around and see that that there is potential within them to do and to have and to be whatever they want to be and that whatever they've been told they have to be like you as a kid mm -hmm. or like me as a kid you know I was I was disruptive I had a stutter I was I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid and and I think teachers and guidance counselors stuff pretty well wrote me off too you know you go from that from lacking confidence and from not wanting to to have the attention on on you to being the center of attention and speaking in front of people for me that was that was a big thing you know speaking in front of people because i had that stutter and it, and it was it was rough and i would trip up and so now i get paid to speak in front of people it's it's a pretty pretty big thing and i know that um like i said there's a lot of parallels between uh 
your journey and my journey. So um, keep going. Yeah. Tell us more. It was kind of like when we met, it was like, we're basically uh, like uh, kindred spirits in a regard. Cause it's like, we both just have that innate drive to not only perform, but to also inspire, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's like, I don't want to just go up there and be like, witness the power of Eric Moss. <laughs> That's not really what I'm about. Like I'm about what's possible, you know? Yeah. And I also like, like love hearing how I positively affected someone, mm-hmm. you know? Definitely. Definitely. Um, talk more about your um, approach to, to putting a show together, to being on the stage, to, to what you want to convey to people while you're up there doing the things that you do. And, and also so, how, how you use the feats to, to enter, to how you intersperse the feats in, in within that to help drive the point home. Right. So <clears throat> when I first went down this journey, um, I was in a tough place in my life. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but it's like when we were at that conference for, for the association of old time barbell and strongman annual reunion dinner, Mm-hmm. I went to that conference just to get my mind off of everything that was going on in my life at that time. My first wife had left me about two weeks before that for the one that I thought was my best friend. And I was in a bad place. I, I had with no best friend to lean on. I was leaning on my other friends, Jack, Jim, and sometimes Jose, which I use as like a temporary crutch. But it was also at that particular conference that I met someone who changed my life forever. New Jersey Superman, the late, great Greg Metonic. Mm-hmm. Now, I started working with him. In, that conference was in October. I started working with him in January the following year. What and year was, was like, that? That was what? 2000? That was 2012. 12. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I started learning from Greg. And I was also reading a lot of personal and professional development books at the same time. Cause I'm like, I got to get my life back. And I noticed that there was a parallel be- between the things that Greg was telling me and the things that like Napoleon Hill was telling me and like think and grow rich and, and various other books, things that Tony Robbins was saying. And I remember just thinking at the time, I'm like, man, this stuff, like a motivational speech would make a really good fit for my show. Kind of like how magicians use like, comedy acts as part of their shows or i was like motivation just seems to fit like a glove with this um not even realizing how much money could be made doing Mm -hmm. that i just wanted to impart on people that they're capable of more than they realize and then it was like as i started after greg passed away and and i'm trying to uh make sure that what he spent the last year of his life teaching me not go to waste. I started trying to just trying to get shows and, and Chris Ryder saw what I was doing and he's like, this guy's good for this. Let's work together. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, you facilitated that connection as well. And it's been a wild journey. And I remember it's like, every time I think like I have to turn it away, it's like, there's something that pulls me back into it. Like, um, I remember a couple of years back, I had thought that I should stop doing schools. And it was because like cor- corporate just has way bigger budgets than schools mm-hmm. do. But I still had some schools under contract and I went to what I thought was the last one I would ever do. And I get kind of choked up whenever I talk about this. We'll see if I can hold it together. And I, I went and I did this show. And this woman ambushes me in the parking lot as I'm like putting my stuff away. And she's like, thank you so much for doing this show. You know, my granddaughter goes to this school and she's going through a really difficult time in her life. And, you know, the, the father beats the mother and, and that sort of thing. And it's just really good to have some sort of positivity come into her life. And I said to her, I'm like, because one of the reasons I thought I had stopped doing shows at schools, I, I wasn't sure if the message was, was hitting because, you know, like the kids see the feats and you know, it's like, wow. But it's like, yeah. it's more than that. And I said, do you think it really makes a difference? And she said, absolutely. They understand more than you realize. And that was like right what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. 
So it's like from an esoteric sense, it's like the signs that I'm on the path, the right path are there as long as I'm open to them. What uh, age group was that? How old was this girl? That was elementary school. Oh, yeah. So somewhere between K and five, that, that particular school was. And I, I oftentimes think of that little girl. Whenever I do a show, I'm like, which one of these kids is going through that hard time? That's that's. I'm glad you shared that story. I didn't know that story. Um, I'm glad you shared that because I had a very similar experience when I was first getting um, getting the the corporate school, uh, you know, figuring out my who's who's my target audience that I want to work with there, and figuring out how <clears throat> how to frame things together so that the feats support the show. And like you said, it's not just a witness my power. It's like no, we have this power kind of thing. And I did a um um it was very low paying but it was like 20 minutes from my house so i could just like zip up and do it thing at a um like a comic book convention thing at a hotel and so i go in and i do the show and there were maybe 30 people in the room and it was one of those things that that i'm on the stage and everybody decided to sit in the back so like the first six or seven rows are sort of empty and you know you're you get up there and you're trying to get everybody into it and you're trying to draw off of it and and they're a bunch of comic book nerds. And I don't say that disparagingly. I say that as like, you know, these are by and large, most of the people that were in the room were pretty introverted and weren't like into, you know, jumping up and down and, and yelling and screaming. So I do my show and I talk about what I talk about. And it was very much in its infancy, the, the way the show was structured, but I, I do a bit with the, um, a feat that we both do, um, where we break a chain with chest expansion mm -hmm. and there aren't a lot of us that are doing that feat as far as strong men go there's maybe five or six of us that, that are doing that feat but that feat is very special to me because slim the hammer man the mighty adam you know two of the two of the guys that that have been inspirations and in, and it's old school it's yeah. old school yeah and um i do this whole bit where i talk about breaking chains and and how um negative influences and negative self-talk especially put a weight on our heart and you know all that sort of stuff so I, I pop out of the chain and do the thing and i don't think much about it but then after the show as you know when you win people over and they want to hang around and come up and get a photo or talk to you or whatever which is always absolutely wonderful there was this one girl I'd, i would say she was probably in her early 20s and um, she was just sort of standing there, sort of just very sheepishly looking at the ground and waiting for everyone to to come up and say hi or 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 whatever, ask their questions. Um, and at first I thought she was just standing there, but it turned out that she was actually waiting to come speak to me. And she comes up and I talked to her for a minute and she she would not make eye contact. She just kept looking down at the ground and was kind of shuffling back and forth, visibly uncomfortable to be having a conversation with someone. And I could tell that this was taking a lot of of just mental bandwidth for her to go up to a stranger and initiate a conversation the way that she was doing it. So I thought this whatever she's going to say, it must be pretty important to her. Right. And so she was just kind of. uh on her words and she was chasing the thought i mean that's kind of how she sounded when she was talking and um essentially she said that she doesn't have very many friends she loves the culture of these comic con type things but she hardly ever goes to them and part of it is because she doesn't have confidence or in and all this and she pauses for a second and then she raises her head up and looks me dead in the eye like like piercing into my eyes for the first time and she says i really needed to hear you say what you said today thank you and so now i'm crying you know and um yeah. I, I never got her name um i would i would recognize her if she walked into the room because like you said earlier there are those pivotal moments that you don't know that are going to hit you um but but that was that was a very similar moment for me i'm like okay people are paying attention to this it's not just oh he, he lit a board on fire and popped a balloon with a nail drive through it it's people are actually picking up on the vibrations of what i'm saying and, and and i think we're very similar in that that is the driving factor behind doing those sorts of things so um 
I appreciate you sharing that story that, that you shared. That's that's good stuff there. Um, can you speak a little bit more about other shows that you've done? And, and I tell you what, it'd be fun since uh, since I don't get to to have this particular topic of conversation very often with with people on the show. But let's talk about when things go wrong on stage and there's. 500 or a thousand people watching you and something doesn't happen the way it's supposed to happen. Oh God, iron jammer. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've had a, a couple instances, you know, like one, this one is just more of a fun story. It's my very first show is I had donated a show to a fundraiser and it's like my show hadn't come together. It was like starting to show the signs that it would come together but as a fundraiser for this girl that didn't have any health insurance and she'd gotten a pretty serious illness. And I went up there to bend a, a steel pretzel and I, I didn't measure it right or something or I bent it in the wrong spot. So I wasn't able to get the loop all the way around. So I'm like, a goose, right? <clears throat> been there. Totally I meant been there. it like that. Yeah. But then there's like other times that it's been, uh, you know, like it, like it actually kind of changed the course and it ended up becoming a story that I use in future things. So like when I first started putting myself out there, I'm like, oh, how do I get shows? So I reached out to magicians and, and motivational speakers. And one of the magicians I became friends with is like, I've been booked it for like an hour and a half for a high school senior assembly. Would you like to provide an intermission for me? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So I prepared this speech in my head called Nothing's Impossible. And I get out on stage and I bend a steel bar, no problem. Break a chain, mm -hmm. no problem. Twist a horseshoe, no problem. Then I pull out a wrench, <laughs> problem. The wrench is tempered. You know, like at the time it was like they, they, they were coming in a two pack and its brother went without issue. But this wrench was tempered and it was nasty. And I'm like, all right, set my mind, focus on what I'm doing. And then I put some power on it where a wrench would normally go. Nothing happens. I put more power on it and I held it for longer. Nothing happens. And then I put as much power as I could and I held it for as long as I could and the room starts going dark. And I'm like, well, if I continue this, I'm going to pass out, right? Mm -hmm. So I get on the microphone. I'm like, this wrench is putting up more of a fight than I anticipated. I could keep going if you want. I have no idea how long it's going to take. Or I could just move on to the next feet. And the next feet was rolling up frying pans. And people really like the, the frying pans. And 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 the thing about rolling up frying pans, my experience is people go crazy over it. Compared to wrench bending, it's far easier to do, in my experience. And predictable. Yes, much more predictable. Wrenches, you have no idea what's going to happen. Fact. Which, you, you know, I'm like, there's, there's lessons in there. It's like, one is you only fail when you quit. Because I would take that wrench home. And later, and sat on my coffee table for six months. And then a couple of days before the holidays, I spend an hour screaming in my living room like a well-adjusted adult. But I was able to get it in an hour. Oh, that was horrible, <laughs> though. Which ended up becoming like a story that I tell in my speeches. But, oh, there was another point that I was going to make with that. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things is like, you don't know what you're going to get until you try. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there's there's variance in materials with everything that we do, mm -hmm. but some things are a little bit more predictable than others. And wrenches, you have no idea. Some will go, some you can't even move with a sledgehammer. Yep. You don't know until you try. Yep. You um, when I interrupted you a minute ago, you were saying that you asked the the audience. They said, "Move on." You said, "We're going to frying pans." So I that's where you were in your story. If you want to go back and oh no, that that okay. I mean, that's the meat and potatoes of it. I just I want to make sure that I didn't uh, disrupt where a point that you were going to make. So nope. um, I'm assuming the frying pans went pretty easily then. Yeah. And that was also like um, a couple frying pans that I rolled up and that like really blows people away when you do a couple of them. Yeah. Did you like the triple you stack yeah. them inside each other? Yeah. Is when we first met, is that what I did? It is. Yeah. Yeah. That right. was it, it, yeah, it was actually two of them, which I still have actually. Cool. I gave mine away, but I keep yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm somewhere. I've got I've got so much twisted up stuff around here that's, you know, worthless scrap metal to anybody except for 
people who know and then people who know they're like oh slim the hammerman bit meant this or dennis rogers bent this for you yeah yeah so yeah most definitely and it's um, like when you when you have to fly off to a conference and like they weigh your suitcase it's like no you please take it please take it you know yeah yeah or are you like me with this particular thing this is this is some some insider pro road warrior strongman stuff um I will pack a bag that has sharp and pointy things in it, but it's a carry on size and I'll check it on the way out and hopefully blast through everything and not have anything sharp and pointy to bring back and do a carry on on the way home so that I don't have to wait for or run the risk of losing one more bag. <laughs> do you well, do that? No, because I actually carry <laughs> mine in, in like a big long case that normally is used for transporting guns. Me too. Which get yeah, which you know, like when I was in in uh, Scottsdale, the conference organizer calls calls me up and she's like, I understand that you have like some unique props, but why'd you bring a gun? I'm like, I I didn't bring a gun and I always get stopped by TSA and you know, but yeah. What do you, you pack know, up? in Texas? In Go. in Texas, they're like, Are there any guns? Nope. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, what do you pack up in that in that? case and what kind of case is it what's the case look like because i'm curious now. Uh, it's con it's considered a i guess a general utility case but it's i think what is the limit it's like 42 inches 44 inches so like with the inner measurement um the longest thing that i do is the five five eight three bar mm -hmm. and i'll put that in like diagonally is and that four then, feet yeah so it goes corner to corner yeah and then in that particular case It'll be a steel bar, a horseshoe, a carriage bolt, frying pan, human link handles, chest expansion belt, wooden board, nail. Did I say nail? Not yet. The nail, and then like the the box of nails for driving, mm -hmm. balloons. Um, did I say steel bar? You did. Yeah, that that too. Um, and then depending on how much it weighs. I'll put the shackles in there, but usually the shackles I'll have to put in the carry-on, which also generates some like weird looks from TSA. I'm like, I need that for a show. <laughs> what just, kind of show? This doesn't help, you know? <laughs> that makes me think of, uh, um, I, I had, that makes me think of um, in dodgeball when their bags get messed up, mm -hmm. they, they, they get the wrong bags. And um, instead of their uniforms, they have all this like S&M bondage gear. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of show are you doing here don't worry about it <laughs> yeah for mine i bought uh is, is yours is it like a hard shell case like almost like a guitar case yeah 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 it's like um, a, i used to try to carry it in a guitar case but it's like i couldn't get the rebar to fit in it right yeah i got a i got a similar case like that too um very tough hard shell um with foam inside of it Mm -hmm. And the one, and, and it was, it was a rifle case and, um, I bought it and the interior piece of foam was just like this giant rectangle of foam. that's like two, two and a half inches thick. And it was designed so that whatever weapon you had whatever kind of rifle you wanted to put in there, whatever you could, um, cut out a silhouette of it and it sits right into that. So I cut out a silhouette shape, you know, marked it off and cut it out with a razor blade, uh, for my sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. because um leverage feats are something that i almost always do um so i put that in there and that you know you're talking about 15 pounds already and then you hey. have to figure out which uh which um other bits of steel you can put in there to come in at that under the limit yeah with the sledgehammer i don't do the leverage bit but i do the thing where it's like you're bridged out between two chairs and you have the the cement block on your stomach and they smash yes. it I have them supply the cement block and mm -hmm. the hammer because mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not traveling with that thing. That'll always put me over the limit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I take my hammer, which I've had, uh, had a pin welded onto the end of it so that I can add weight to it. So it's about 12 and a half pounds. It's custom. Yeah. And then I, um, depending on, where I am in a training cycle, how many shows I've been doing or, or how I'm feeling, I'll carry anywhere from uh, a single two and a half pound plate 
or usually a two and a half pound plate and a one and a quarter pound barbell plate that I can then put on there. And that brings the weight up over, um, I think to 15 and three quarters, or is it 16 and a half, whatever it is, it's, it's right around 16 pounds. And the way that I use that feed in the show is I do the, um, lay it on the, on the stage, lever it up to vertical, like slim the hammer man's challenge hammer. And I'll call people up and have them do that at the 12 and a half pound weight. And then no matter how it goes, it, it still turns out. Okay. Cause even on the couple of rare occasions that I've gotten somebody who's just strong as a bull and able to do it, even if they don't know the technique or they're able to get it almost up. That's what she said, but not quite. Um, then I can add weight to it. And it just, it, it reinforces that the, an average person can, can get a feel for what this is like, but the training and the discipline that goes along with it to be able to take it way beyond that level. And I talk about the math in there too. I haven't done a show um, long enough that I don't, it's been so long since I've done a show that I don't have those numbers memorized. Right. I know that a 16 pound hammer comes in at 496 pounds of or inch pounds of force. Um, but the 12 and a half, I don't remember what that is exactly. Maybe it's 362, 367 and a half of force that has to go through the wrist. So yeah, working with hammers is, is fun. Traveling with hammers, not so much, um, but I'm with you on the whole thing about the guns. When I got off the plane in Munich, I had two freaking full on, you know, bulletproof arm body armor with the, the machine guns hanging around their neck like this soldiers, you know, military police come over. What do you have in the case? <laughs> and I'm like, bro, just open it up and look, I'm not here to start any trouble, you know? Um, yeah. And, but then the, then the Germans did also want to know why I didn't have a gun in there. It was kind of strange. So, you know, you have to, like have to figure out what's, yeah. Yeah. Not like Texas. You got a gun in there? No. Well, here's one for you. <laughs> <laughs> like the old joke um, in Nashville here about never, ever, ever leave a banjo in your car unlocked because you'll come back and there'll be two more. So someone won't steal your banjo. People who don't want their banjos will think it's a banjo. Give it to you. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's a, that's a country music joke, I guess, which speaking of music, we have a lot in common in, in that range too. We're, we're both very excited about some of the upcoming tours that are happening. Yeah. Um, um, Judas priest. Oh, my your, favorite, your yeah. favorite band. Love um, Judas priest about to hit the road. We were talking about it before we, um, before I hit record about, um, one of the guitar players who's not an original member, um, but one of the guitar players in Priest actually lives about a half an hour from me in a little town called Murfreesboro, a guy named um, Richie Faulkner, who, um, and also, I, I don't think I ever told you this, Dave Mustaine lives about 20 minutes from me as well. Really? Yeah. And I've, I've seen him like at the farmer's market before, which is kind of cool. You know, um, I had met him once before, which is a story for another time, but um, I met him and bent a wrench for him in person because of a, of a mutual acquaintance that we have. And so the next time I saw him, like, and I'll periodically seen him on airplanes or at the airport or whatever, or out around town, but seeing him at the farmer's market was pretty cool. Cause he's, you know, over there buying zucchini, like all the rest of us. Um, but we were talking earlier about Richie Faulkner and um, I think now, Judas priest, obviously priest and black Sabbath, we have to go on record. No one is going to dispute that they invented an entire genre, you know, yeah. between the two of them, right? Not only did they invent a genre, they perfected a formula for band lineups. I mean, if we look at it, pretty much every uh, there's 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 three like primary band configurations that you can come up with. And they took care of two of them, the lead singer plus the trio. I mean, the, the one of them being like the power trio, like Jimi Hendrix experience and cream and proto metal like that. Right. Um, but then you add a lead singer in there and, you know, Zeppelin and Sabbath started that around the same time, but you know, Sabbath obviously inventing heavy metal along the way as they did that because of the, the, the living legend, Tony Iommi. Um, and then the other is let's just throw another guitar in there and let the, let the guitars play off each other. Right. And so I think priest, I think priest perfected that and that everything that has come since then has been just variations on the theme of the twin guitar approach. Um, 
in in heavy metal. So, you know, Richie Faulkner, I think, has the single most metal moment in all of music history that has ever happened. And that You're talking is, about painkiller. I'm talking about painkiller. Yeah. I'm talking about he what it, what was it like an, an a, he ruptured his aorta or something in the middle of the solo from painkiller which if you're not if you're not a musician or if you're not a metal fan um the solo from painkiller it is not short and it is not easy to play and so you know he's up there literally his heart exploding in his chest while he's playing as he finishes the song comes off stage and they and they take him immediately to surgery so that is like the most metal thing that that could possibly ever happen right yeah <laughs> you know it's like of of course it happened during painkiller yes yes you know? most definitely and um prior to that i thought that the most metal thing that ever happened was at the full um solar eclipse a few years earlier you know when was that 2017 maybe you're talking about bark at the moon talking about bark at the moon where yeah where Ozzy played Bark at the Moon as the eclipse happened during the eclipse and coming out of the eclipse. That's like the most metal thing that's ever happened. So, yeah. so I guess that must all have been real special. Yeah. Did you ever see the videos of it? I did. I was like, man, that must have been so cool to be there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it, it, I think it's really cool that the two bands who, in my opinion, created the genre of metal also have the top two and those moments are really kind of interchangeable except with the eclipse no one there was no danger anyone was going to die right yeah. but, but beyond that that's like um the two most metal things that could possibly happen and those things happened decades after the bands formed decades after they they had established themselves and created this genre that you know hundreds of thousands of bands have come along and emulated or been inspired by and all that sort of stuff so um two parts to, to why i'm bringing this up i want to hear your opinions on mighty metal moments that, that that have happened with musicians throughout the years and also how does that sort of thing relate back to um being a performing strongman and specifically the mental aspect of being a strongman so like, I guess one of the things that is like, when we talk about like perfecting heavy metal music is like where re Priest really shined was like, I guess, providing the vibe of what metal is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like where Black Sabbath, they had the darkness for sure. And they had some killer riffs. But the way Rob Halford explained it during the their like rock and roll a hall of fame induction ceremony is like the motorcycle the addition of the motorcycle on stage mm -hmm. is kind of like the iconic metal thing because the motorcycle is like unapologetically loud mm -hmm. it is out there it doesn't it doesn't care what you think right it just is what it is and it's badass and all that stuff so i guess how that relates is i mean like being authentic to who you are you, you know what i mean is that like I'm finding it difficult to articulate that, but I mean that that to me is what it is. Is like we have this thing that we love, and we're unapologetic about why we love it. It's mm -hmm. dark, it's loud, it scares people, but it's what we love. And then it turns out that like people who listen to heavy metal music in psychological studies are like better balanced than most others, and the theory is because it provides a healthy outlet for that inherent darkness that's already in us that a lot of people deny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I'm totally on board with you that the, the vibe and the aesthetic and the yes, Sabbath doom heavy, like, like what key is this? It's in the key of doom, right? <laughs> it's just yeah. that, that heavy, right? The but, devil's interval that they were scared would summon the devil when you played yeah. it. it was like their signature thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think also, in addition to that, um, it's it's very much like a an old horror movie vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Is is how Black Sabbath was, and so in the midst of all that, you can still hear, or at least I can, Ozzy's love for the Beatles, and you can still hear um, Tony's love for the blues, right? Mm -hmm. And and Bill Ward, he was 
Bill Ward was almost like a jazz drummer that showed up at the wrong gig and and liked it, right? <laughs> or like, yeah. like or or like he was at a jazz gig and like you're hitting the you're hitting the kit too hard, leave. And so he went and found a metal band, right? So there was there's still very much a um um almost like a hippie vibe. Yeah. In a, in a lot of the Sabbath stuff, right? Like especially in in some of their their lighter stuff like uh, Planet Caravan or like I saw a, a a live a version of them recording more recently like 10 or 12 years ago recording re-recording the wizard and with mm -hmm. the harmonica and all that and i'm like yeah you guys were hippies that just stumbled on to to heaviness right and and i mean that with the sincerest form of love that i possibly can halford specifically the motorcycle and him bringing the 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 bondage snm leather boy fashion sense into metal um it, you know at first glance you know and, and everyone knows that, that rob halford's gay i did not know until the other day that his that he's married to the guy who was um he was he was like a a, a child movie star um tommy's i forget what his name is but anyway it doesn't really matter but halford bring until just now actually yeah uh well he he posted a on Instagram, Halford posted a photo of the two of them. It was like a happy holidays thing. And the guy looked familiar. And um, so I read some of the comments and they named the guy's name. And I, I forget what his name is now, but I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that, that that's who you were hitched up to. You're going to look it up now, right now, aren't you? I can tell. No, I'm, my, my computer is actually kind of low on battery. So I'm just okay. going to go plug it in. Yeah. Um, it's like, I saw that thing too, but I didn't think anything of it although i've often wondered i'm like who is it that wins the heart of the metal god well it's that guy and i don't yeah. remember what his name is but we'll we'll see if we can find out later on um but i think that bringing that whole that whole leather and studs image thing into the general aesthetic of metal definitely added something to it that took it from being just kind of doomy and scary and let's smoke a lot of weed into this whole a, 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 like you said earlier it's it's hard to articulate but there's there's it, it, it's metal right i mean it's mm -hmm. like you see that and and like you just can't help but but throw up the horns and go raw metal right yeah so um oh if you actually look at the iron man video they're dressed like hippies yes you know yeah that was that was what was out at the time and then um According to legend, and by legend, it's KK's book. Right. He saw Rob Halford pull up on a motorcycle one day wearing his full leather attire and all that stuff. And he's like, that is, they needed a look that captured the essence of what the music was like. And he's like, that looks, that looks like what we're looking for. And they also wanted a like uniformity. So it's like they had uniforms and this would be right. their band identity. Right, and then I guess adding the motorcycle into it just came a little bit later. But I was like, "Yeah, that's that's the vibe." Because you, if you actually listen to Judas Priest, where they say they came from in Birmingham, where there's like foundries and forges and stuff like that, and this do, 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 yes, that informed the rhythm of the music, and that's kind of the imagery. It's like this chugging thing that makes you know, like people say, "What is it that you?" You love about heavy metal. I'm like when I listen to it, I feel like I can crash through walls and conquer the world. Right. I like that feeling. It's a good feeling. It's definitely a good feeling. Um, how many times have you seen Priest live? Every tour that they've done since 2004. Hmm. So however many that is. That's a lot. So it's like I need to always see this band. Yeah. Yeah, I've only ever seen them once, and it was in 1984, 85. It was on the um, Defenders of the Faith tour. That must have been sick. It was amazing. It was amazing. They opened with the um, the Metallion. They opened with uh, Love Bites. And the Metallion, for anybody that doesn't know, and I know we're totally geeking out on metal here, but for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, the Metallion is this Look big, it up this mythical it's on the cover of the defenders of the faith album and it looks like almost like a a lion type monster beast thing like if you think about about transformer uh, 
yeah like yeah, yeah. like if, if if you took um one of the like the traditional chinese lion dance costume type things and and melded it with optimus prime it looks like that right so it's this big metallic thing and both its paws were up like this and the it, it wasn't did i say did i say they opened with love bites you said they opened with the metallion and then love bites yeah um so it was everything goes dark and love bites is, has this very distinct introduction where halford sings a line and the band hits a bah, down and they do that two or three times right and it's like um when you feel safe but when you feel warm but and so the, it's completely dark in the arena and halford sings the line and the lights flash and you can see, catch just that glimpse like like a strobe light effect the lights flash in time with the music and then when the band kicks in um the lights come up and there's a the spotlights and there you know explosions and all that but the metallion had both of its of its paws up and halford was sitting on a, a throne of some sort if i remember correctly on one of those paws and then it slowly lowered down to stage level and then he walked off of that and kept singing the song and i'm like it was just the theatrical element of that done with that much power yeah and it's just like you know you, you see that stuff and you're just like that's heavy metal right there you know yeah it was amazing when i when i was introduced to them like this is when I was like, I knew of Judas Priest from like recordings and stuff like that, but live is a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. like you could see Rob Halford's voice; it's that powerful. Yes, but I remember it was in the it was at Ozfest in two thousand four, and it's like you see a bunch of bands come on, and they they pretty much do they play their songs and they walk around the stage, and that's pretty much the extent of their show. Mm -hmm. And then the lights in the place go out, and there's like this big giant eyeball in the back mm. right and there's a spotlight in the middle of it and it's like shining on you like like it's looking at you and then they open up with the helion which is like the the precursor to electric eye yes and right before rob halford starts singing the thing opens up and there he is in the middle of the eyeball singing electric eye i'm like this is cool this is what metal could be yes yes i've never heard that that story about them performing that song that way that's amazing i'm gonna have to go dig up some youtube and see if i can find it look um, up um the um rising in the east tour because they did that same thing again cool um and and even when they put out stinkers like turbo there's still some good songs on there you know yeah as as an album um turbo is like eh but if you watch them live perform like turbo lover you're like oh it's still heavy metal you just recorded it like it was 1986 or 87 or whenever it was um but uh yeah he does better when he shaves his head <laughs> i like I, I like the look of the shaved head with the tattoos yes Badass, you know yeah. yeah and then some of my favorite stuff that halford ever did was the stuff he did with fight too i love that stuff oh yeah and yeah. halford like the halford's self-named band no, yeah. Metal Mike actually lives like 20 minutes from me. Didn't know it's that. Pretty cool. Didn't know that. Oh. And so like he'll do like local shows and with um his touring singer, the guy named Mark Lopes or Lopez. And that guy's pretty mm -hmm. solid too. I'm like, this is pretty cool. All right. So we've we've gone deep down the metal rabbit hole here, but let's uh see if I can bring this back around. Obviously, for anyone to come up with the music and the shows that that not just priests, but people of that caliber and to have that kind of vision, they have to get something in their mind of what that end result feels like, looks like, sounds like. And then they sort of reverse engineer the process of how to get there. That I think is a parallel between the metal music that we're talking about and what we do with strongmen. Right. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm curious I'd like to hear you talk about visualization, mental imagery, mental rehearsal, any kind of techniques that you have like that, that help you train for specific feats or help you in actually delivering a performance from a stage. Cause I know that, you know, earlier you mentioned Napoleon Hill. We both have, have dug deep into that old school metaphysical kind of stuff as we've gone along with this. I want to hear you talk more about that kind of stuff. So with visualization, you know, like, <clears throat> Basically, you have to train the feats, right? 
But my signature feed, the one that I have the world record in, I don't train that. I only perform it live. The only kind of train, which is bending a, a steel reinforcing bar on the bridge of my nose. The only kind of training I do is like, I might grab my nose to just kind of push it in a little bit, just to make sure everything is solid. But the vast majority of it that I've done was in my head, mm -hmm. you know, like envisioning um, bending steel on the bridge of my nose. And if I'm visualizing it really intensely, I can actually feel like a throbbing happening on my nose. And people have like put their finger on my nose and they could feel it happening, right? And then, um, you know, like la last year, um, I, had I had done something that I had been wanting to do ever since I first saw Dennis do it, which is hold back a motorcycle as mm -hmm. it like tried to take off at full throttle. With that particular feat, you don't really know exactly what to expect. You know, like you kind of have an idea. And I remember thinking, I'm like, all right, let's see. I can train really heavy swings so that I can make sure that my grip is up to par. But in terms of like that sideways motion, mm -hmm. no idea exactly what to expect. But I would visualize what it might feel like so that by the time I did it, which was 10 years it was like my, essentially celebrating 10 years of, mm -hmm. of uh, going down this, this rabbit hole of, of a uh, steel bending strong man. I had only done it once just to test to make sure I could do it before bringing it to a show, but I had done it in my head thousands of times over, over a 10 year period. And I would watch the videos of Dennis doing it and like, imagine me being there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, where you actually go and, and I, I think a lot of times we talk about visualization and people will imagine seeing themselves on a screen, like watching themselves on a movie screen or on a computer screen or TV screen or something. But I think that you nailed the essence of it right there, like the difference between success and failure. You could have imagined watching yourself on the screen, but what you actually did is you imagined yourself in the movie, mm -hmm. right? And so you you bring in all of the the sensory vividness of what does the pull on the the harness and the handles feel like? What does sounds am I hearing when these bikes are revving up? What does this? Can you smell the burning rubber? that kind of stuff, right? Like getting that kind of vividness in there. Um, I think that's the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful mental rehearsal or, or visualization. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah, it's like I, I had done it in my head a thousand times. It was just a matter of doing it for real this time. Now, do you, before you go on, do you get any anxiety or nervousness before you go on and perform? Mm, it depends. So, before I perform, like at least at the corporate level, I, I get myself bound up in shackles and chains around my chest. And I'll do this like a couple minutes before it's time to go on. But then the person starts like lagging and I'm like, oh, it's kind of hard to breathe in this thing. Can you hurry it up? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I experienced that, that adrenaline rush that goes with it, that could be interpreted as stage fright that could be interpreted as nervousness or whatever, but I choose to look at it as this is just excited energy that I'm going to direct where I want it to go oh, yeah. rather than allowing it to, to keep me from going where I want to go. And I think that that is one of the things that, that makes for a nice little segue from, from the idea of doing something like getting on a stage, experiencing a feeling, a physical sensation of an emotion that is, that could be interpreted multiple ways. Um, and then choosing to use that as part of the process rather than allowing it to shut down the process. I realized after my son was born that that is very much, uh, applicable to all things related to being a dad. And specifically, or especially, it's related to helping my son 
who just turned five to be able to regulate his own emotional state. Because I, when, when he gets out of sorts, nervous, you know, overwhelmed by something or, or upset about something, um, I'm able to identify, not identify, I'm able to empathize with the state that he's in. And rather than try to shut it down, I'm able to sort of use that ability to mentally rehearse empathetically to put myself in the situation. He's like, okay, something's going on. He doesn't know how to manage. And it probably feels a lot like just about to walk on stage because, because there's uncertainty, right? I know what I'm doing, but there's still uncertainty. Or like being out there and having something go wrong, like the wrench doesn't want to move. Or in, in my case, a very similar thing happened at the Arnold Classic, um, performing with Dennis Rogers and Mike the Machine Bruce in front of God knows how many people were actually there. But it, you know, it's the only time I've ever looked up and seen myself on a jumbotron, like, like, you know, you'd have at a WWE event. But I went to bend a twelve-inch spike, and uh, everything was fine with me and the spike. But the the stage was um, smooth and there was a, we were in between um, like the grip sport athletes and the competitive strongmen. So they were doing um, implement changes and setting the stage up for the, the next group of athletes to come out and compete. And we were filling in that half hour spot or whatever it was while everyone's behind us chaotically striking things down and, and putting things back up. And I go to do the I, I hit it over my thigh. And get, you know, about that much of a, of a kink in it. And I hold it up and everyone, oh, and all that kind of stuff. And I go between the legs to do the between the leg finish off that, that, uh, um, if you're a strong man, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, then it sounds like I'm just saying words that don't make sense together, but you put it between the legs, you use Crush the hands. Position. Yeah. Yeah. You, you put it between the legs, use the hands to torque it, but you also squeeze the thighs together to brace and to give it a little added bonus like that. And when I did my foot slid. I've had that happen many times on wrenches. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I set up again and do it again. And my foot slides again. And I'm like, this is like, it's like trying to push a chain, right? You you can't do it. And so here I am in front of, I would say there are at least 3000 people right there. And I knew way back there somewhere, Lou Ferrigno could see me on, on the, the jumbotron too, because I had spoken Hulk. to him. I had yeah. spoken to him and met him earlier that day. And been a 60 penny nail for him. And he's the reason anybody that knows me that he's the reason that, that I started lifting weights in the first place. Right. And so I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? And I, I'm like, I've, I vividly remember thinking, what would the mighty Adam do right now? And then I remember holding up the bent spike. And fortunately someone caught on video and, and I was able to see what I did later. I moved from the between the leg position to this, um, up, up top crush position and laid into it and it didn't go it didn't go it didn't go and then boom it just melted like that and I really don't have any conscious recollection of doing that so so being able to take that emotional energy and stuff that could just flatten you and you'd be like I, I got nothing else you know um and yeah. then you just you go hide and cry being able to take that and redirect it towards something productive I see that as a thing that happens with my son and he's starting to be able to to recognize, okay, I'm experiencing these physical sensations. You know, my chest feels this way. Um, I, I my my body feels. He says his, his stomach feels jibbly, right? That nervousness kind of thing. And he's starting to realize that he can either label that as fear or he can label that as excitement. And however yeah. he labels it dictates what he's going to do next and and how he's going to use that. Is that something? Um, does stuff like that come up with you where you're able to draw on your experience as a, as a performer and as a strength athlete and be able to apply something like that to a seemingly mundane situation of, uh, as, uh, as a father? Yeah, kind of. I mean, so like one of the things that I <clears throat> realized as a dad, and I knew this inherently, but I, I had also like read books where they talked about this is knowing that kids, when they're first born, they're basically just like a bundle of nerves. Mm -hmm. Every little sensation, they have no idea what it is. So every new sensation is a potential threat, so they cry. And then that crying incites us to come to their aid. As they go along, they get a bit more knowledge under their belt, but they still don't really know how to manage these big feelings that they have. 
even adults don't even know how to manage these big feelings that they have. You know, as we've seen with people going off on tirades after or whatever. Right. Um, as far as like labeling things, fear and excitement, I'm still working with my kids on that. Mm-hmm. Cause like they have, I don't, I don't, I don't even know where these fears come from, but like if my daughter is in the bathroom and she, and we talk some, for some reason that scares her, no idea where that's coming from, but that's one of the things is like, we're there to help her manage through her emotions. Also like understanding where it's like, they'll be afraid of like what other kids are thinking about them mm-hmm. or other kids will say stuff to them. And I'm like, well, why does that matter? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to go back to that whole, like where you have no recollection of stuff. Yeah. Were you there when I set the world record? No. Wait, okay, wait, at, so, uh, at AOBS? At AOBS, yeah. Yes, yes, I was. So with that, if if you remember, it was Chris Ryder on the, mm-hmm. uh, he was the one managing the clock. He was announcing, yeah. And then Christina DeVos was the, my feeder. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I could do five in a minute, optimistically six or seven, and then I had eight. And I'm like, let me just bring it just in case. I don't right. highly doubt I'm going to get through all eight. But I started blasting through it and I had like no sense of what's happening. It was just completely immersed in the moment where it was very mechanical. Hand me the bar, bend it, bend it again with my elbow, throw it on the ground, do it again, 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 where after she fed me the eighth one, she's like, that's it. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I was like legit confused. I couldn't process what was happening in the moment, you know? And I think that's actually something that like our kids they they just can't process it It just it doesn't click you know but then as they get a bit more experience into the boat they're like okay i understand what this is Hmm. how are you taking these these principles these these ideas these concepts whatever you want to call them that have allowed you to achieve the things that you've achieved as an athlete as a as a performer and using those as ways to help raise better children oh one of the things is like when they talk kids get all sorts of limiting beliefs in their head so i actually want to show you a picture so this is my training studio and sometimes my kids like to hang out here when i'm working right and i'll be like see if you can pick that up and they are uh, they're both capable of so much Mm mm-hmm but this is a picture. Let's see if I can get it to actually show. Is it there? Yeah. Picture Aurora drew of her picking up the beast. And it says, wow, you're strong. <laughs> That's me encouraging her. Right. And that was a like a, a memory that she had of her being able. It was actually the 44 kilogram, which right. is around 97 pounds for non-catabolic people that don't speak in kilograms. For a six-year-old, that is quite mighty. Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. I um, my highest performing video ever on TikTok isn't of me; it's of my son, who has seen me do the nail drive feat dozens, if not hundreds, of times since he was born. And he, for as long as he's been able to to walk up to the board even before he was verbal, he would point at the the board and the nail and, and indicate to me that, you know, through grunts and, and baby talk that he wanted to give it a shot. And I would give him the nail wrapped up and he would just kind of, you know, do the woodpecker thing on it. Um, but one day I just happened to decide to roll a video as he was saying, can I try the nail drive? And I wrapped it up and he, he hits it. And I, just happened to be going in slow motion too. Like I didn't pre-plan any of that, but he hits it and the nail sticks in the board with enough force that, that he could, when he released the, the pad, it was still stuck in there. It didn't penetrate all the way through, but it, it went in deep enough. Five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, he was, I want to say this was shortly before, shortly after he turned four. So it's, it's been a while since he did it. But um, that video has gotten 4.7 million views. It's my my best performing video on TikTok. But the cool thing about it <clears throat> is that never once have I coached him on technique. 
He's just seen me do it. And when I shared that video with Dennis Rogers and with Adam Glass and um, Tim Fox and um, a bunch of other guys, and I sent it to probably seven or eight different strongman friends that I know, almost all of them said, wow, he's got really good technique. And I'm like, but I've never actually said, you know, that anything I've never said anything about his technique other than make sure that the hand that's not holding the nail isn't on the board so that you don't that's hit a your serious one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that, and, and you wouldn't have to tell that to an adult, but you know, when he's three years old and he's just fully in trust mode and wants to do what daddy's doing, he'll find the, his body will find the way to get there, but he doesn't understand the inherent danger of self-imposed stigmata by doing that. So, um, really proud of proud of that moment and it was after i turned it off this this is the coolest thing out of the whole bit is he told me i'm really proud of myself good excellent and and I, i'm of the belief that i can tell him all day long how proud of him i am and that's great and i do um but there's a, a level of meaning that he cannot get any other way than by understanding that he is proud of himself it's great to get external validation from me and his mom and from the world and all that. But that internal validation of I did this hard thing and I'm proud of myself for doing it. I think that, like you said earlier, there's a lot of grown people that that either don't know how or are inherently afraid to say that about themselves or they're they're too wrapped up in their own um stories of that they tell themselves of why they shouldn't be proud of themselves to acknowledge that yes i did something and it was hard and it was awesome and i'm awesome for doing it yeah so that your your drawing you know reminded me of that um we are i just learned looked uh looked over and saw there's that little kid with the stutter popping his head back out right um i just looked over and saw what time it is and i'm like uh yeah we're close to the close to the time that i need to to jump off so i want to um quickly do a um um rapid fire round with you if that's okay sure and then um is there anything else you wanted to, to to say i know this is like we said this is like a couple of guys talking but uh is there anything that you want to say beyond go to amazon and find this book <laughs> oh well follow me on youtube that's yeah. where um you know like i i actually have a, a couple things going there where like when i do a show i i chronicle it because like people were asking me for like a sequel to my book and i'm like writing a book is a lot of work mm -hmm. i don't want to write another one that and it's like with my book there's like a definitive beginning point and there's like a like when you've arrived you know mm -hmm. kind of where there isn't really a point like that but i i still like to remember all my shows and i'm like there's still a story to be told mm -hmm. which i started doing it in like a vlog format sure because i'm like i want it to be um something that like i would want to watch that and like as far as like reality TV, people are watching people drink and act like bozos. And I'm like, if that's interesting, what do you see what I bring? Right? Yeah. That and yeah. I watched, some, I like spent 14 minutes of my life watching some guy clean his garage. And I'm like, if that guy can make that interesting, <laughs> right. surely I can make what I do interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, but and then the other, other thing is like, I have a, a mission statement of making the world strong, right? <clears throat> and I started, po people would ask me questions and I would respond to them with a video just for them, which, you know, like people would tell me to get on TikTok and the, the format itself of TikTok isn't conducive to go into the kind of depth that I want right. to go to. So people would ask me questions about my take on various things within strength, in which case we're at a unique time in history where it's like, can you imagine, or where it's like you can interact with the, uh, the celebrity like can you imagine in the 80s if you sent a question to arnold schwarzenegger and he answered it with a video just for you right we're at that point and it doesn't cost anything it's beautiful right yeah so like that's where i can i pump out most of my content is people ask me a question create a video for them post it and then i just yeah and and it also chronicles my performances so that's really and, where I would send people. So the the YouTube to look for is Eric Moss, the Strongman Experience. Yeah, if I anybody think so. wants to I, check that it, out, it, it, it's going to be the one that has like the most uh, followers because I've had a couple different accounts over the years. But yeah, I just I just pulled it up, um, and there's a one post a video posted from four days ago about um, overcoming isometrics. So 
that's yeah um, that's that's where i get the most questions is for isometrics yeah, yeah. um all right so go check that out um just go on youtube and search eric moss strongman experience and you will find it for sure there all right rapid fire time are you ready mm -hmm. all right um what's the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received probably when slim the hammerman farman told me that i'm capable of it too um what is your favorite holiday halloween what is one useless talent that you have? I know that we've got some seemingly useless talents between the two of us that we've managed to capitalize on, but what's it like a truly useless talent that you have? Listen to this. It's <laughs> the best one yet. <laughs> um, if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would you, what would it be? Probably steak. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? David Lee Roth. Um, share a brief story uh, that your kid said or did something about your kid that's either funny or heartwarming as, as a dad moment. So last year around Halloween, I was walking around the house singing a song called Blood Red Sandman by Lordy. And my daughter, Eden, who's three at the time, was like, what's that song, Daddy? And I'm like, Blood Red Sandman by Lordy. She's like, I want to watch the video, which if you've ever seen, it's kind of a scary video, but mm. Eden loved it. She would make up stories about the baby blood red Sandman. And it's like, you hear this coming from this little three-year-old voice. It's hysterical when, when you, awesome. when you listen to it, you know, that's awesome. Um, what is a favorite family meal that you have in your house? Well, a lot of times the kids eat something different than us, but I always love tacos. You know, almost without exception, people have been saying Taco Tuesday, like the yeah. past the past three or four guys that I've talked to has been like Taco Tuesday or Taco Thursday. So that's cool. I'm, yeah, I'm it on Wednesdays well. and I'm like, we're so close. <laughs> well, you're bridging the gap, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like Tuesday, Taco Thursday. So that's good. Um, and then the last one, what is a personal belief or a personal mantra, a personal principle, value, whatever you want to call it, that you want to be absolutely certain that you as a dad instill in your kids? Do right by others, do right by yourself. Very good. All right. Well, that is it for me today. I want to thank you, Eric, for being on the show. Any other parting thoughts you want to have for everybody that's listening? Uh, not that I can think of, but I mean, if you ever want to do this again, you just let me know. Sure. I appreciate it. And we will probably do that. I'm going to stop recording now and we'll talk a little bit. Um, everybody's listening. Thanks a bunch. And we'll see you next time.